to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Brother Vern comes to give a public reading of the Word of God. Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Amen. These are the words of God. Amen. I pray that we receive it as such. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Amen. Father, you said that unless the Lord builds the city, they labor in vain that build it. Unless the Lord keeps the city, the watchman wakes in vain. Lord, we need you to build and we need you to watch and we need you to, to, to see to it that your will is done in us and in this earth and in this church like your will is done in heaven. Lord, more than anything else, we want your name to be hallowed in this place and we want you, O oh God, to cause us to be so close to you that we will quickly forgive those who have wronged us so that we may be forgiven because we have wronged you. Lord, we want your kingdom to come. We no longer want, God, what, what our government provides for us, but we seek after a city whose architect and builder is God. And Lord, we know we are strangers and pilgrims just passing through. This world is not our home. And so we ask you, God, to deal with us as strangers and as pilgrims in this life and cause us, O oh God, to follow after Jesus because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, help us, God, to understand this portion of your word as we delve a little bit deeper into it this morning. Give me unction and anointing as I herald this glorious gospel and let it all be done to your glory and to the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. To the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, amen. Now, we're right in the middle of trying to determine if fasting is the unshrunk cloth or the old wineskin of verses 16 and 17, as some people teach. In other words, are the people who say that fasting was an Old Testament truth that has been made obsolete by the entrance of the New Covenant teaching the truth? Is it true that fasting has gone the way of Sabbath observance, going to the temple in Jerusalem once a year, the Levitical priesthood, tithing, the Sanhedrin court, animal sacrifices, and the dietary and ceremonial aspects of the Old Covenant. And one of the main reasons to reject such thinking is what Jesus himself said at the end of verse 15. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But then last week we also began to look at five more reasons that the New Covenant teaches us that fasting is still a viable means of grace. Number one, New Testament believers should fast 
for God to raise up ministries that will change the world. Number two, New Testament believers should fast for waters that do not fail. Number three, New Testament believers should fast for the safety of the little ones. Number four, New Testament believers should fast for the Father's reward. And five, New Testament believers should fast for the return of Jesus. And we've already gone over one and two, so let's look at number three this morning. New Testament believers should fast for the safety of the little ones. I'm going to direct your attention to the book of Ezra, chapter 8, verses 21 through 23, that says, Then I proclaimed to fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, matter and he listened to our entreaty. Hallelujah. Now it's hard to read the Old Testament with any degree of honesty and not see that over and over and over the Lord commanded the fathers of the Old Covenant to love their children, provide for their children, and protect their children and to teach their children. Fathers were to raise up strong and godly and loving sons who would inherit the father's business, farm the fields, harvest the crops, raise the animals, and guide and protect and provide for their mothers and their sisters and their daughters and their wives. But beside learning husbandry and farming skills and beside acquiring the skill and knowledge to carry on the father's business, children were taught the word of God. And so they were systematically catechized in the ways and the truth of God so that the next generation of people would know and understand and love and enjoy their maker. And all of that is carried over into the New Testament. And so today as bond slaves of the Lord Christ, we are to love our children, provide for our children, to protect our children, and to teach our children. Not merely economics and reading and science and art, but we are told over and over in the infinitely superior new covenant to teach our children the ways and the truth of God. But one thing that was common with the ancient Jew that must be common among us today, that they did all of this not through fear, not through a sense of impending doom, and not by rationalizing all of the reasons why they shouldn't or couldn't do what God had commanded. No, the ancient Jew as well as the modern day Christian must do all of this with delight, with joy, with a sense that the owner and the creator of the universe will defeat any foe, overcome any challenge, and bring success to the believer and their children. 450 years before Jesus was born, God moved on Ezra to write in verse 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. And so I say to all of us this morning that we too should fast for the same four reasons that Ezra fasted, that we might humble ourselves before our God, that God would grant to us a safe journey through this life, that God would cause our little ones to be safe, and that God would keep our possessions. And so, so this morning I want to talk about fasting for the safety of the little ones, because by anybody's estimation, our children are being targeted by Satan and by those who are in alignment with him. For example, Canada is in the process of passing a law that would allow the government 
to come and take children away from their parents if a three-year-old child says he or she is a different gender than God made him or her to be and the parents attempted to talk him or her out of that sin and out of that nonsense. But here at home, we are faced with enormous challenges concerning our children. For example, on June the 24th, 2022, the United States Supreme Court issued what has come to be called the Dobbs decision concerning a woman's right to have access to an abortion based on the U.S. Constitution. The Dobbs ruling overturned a January 22, 1973 ruling by the highest court, that was Roe v. Wade, where a single black robe judge who did not have one day of medical training literally fabricated a right that was never spelled out in the Constitution. Many of us were outraged at Roe v. Wade and did everything we could to stop it, including getting arrested. The 1973 decision was bad law, based on a premise that has been routinely condemned by people on both sides of this issue for decades. Yet until the Dobbs decision of 2022, that illegal and unconstitutional ruling was the law of the land for 49 very dark years where an average of 1.2 million human beings, most of them black, most of them female, were systematically, violently, and barbarically murdered by either hacking them to death with surgical hose or, or burned to death with saline solution. This modern-day eugenics movement went on unabated for nearly a half century in a country that prides itself on our compassion and technological advancements. And because of fancy accounting and bookkeeping practices, the tax dollars of born-again believers were absolutely used to fund those abortions in the death mills of Planned Parenthood, an organization that was begun by the avowed racist and eugenics proponent Margaret Sanger, who famously said, quote, we should hire three or four colored ministers, preferably with social service backgrounds, and with engaging personalities. The most successful educational approach to the Negro is through a religious appeal. We don't want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members." Unquote. And of whom presidential candidate Hillary Clinton Bragg was her role model. Please hear me when I tell you that the Dobbs decision did not end abortion in this country. All that Dobbs did was to return the issue of abortion to the legislatures of the 50 states. And as, this, as of this morning, 21 state legislatures have voted to allow abortion in one form or another, while only 15 states ban abortion after conception. But the legislatures of Alaska, Colorado, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, Vermont, as well as Washington, D.C., moved quickly after the Dobbs decision to make sure that everybody knew that abortion is allowed in their states for any reason at all with no limit. My point is that our efforts against the determined war against children is far from over. Because in 2024, in the United States of America, if by some miracle the children survive the abortionist knife, they are at risk to be kidnapped by gangs who sell them into sex slavery around the world. And those who manage to not be kidnapped are at risk of being molested by a literal sea of perverted men who are now going to demand their rights by adding the letters M, M, B, or M, C 
to the alphabet of LGBTQ+, so that they can gain federal approval to impose their evil acts on little children. But the children who manage to escape being molested are then at risk of being indoctrinated, to hate God, to view the Bible as nonsense, and encouraged to inject hormones and have surgeries performed on them by evil people posing as doctors because they are confused about how God created them to be. Beloved, we should fast for the safety of our little ones. Now back in 1973, nobody knew what we knew today. We always knew that morally abortion was unconscionable. And so we acted and continued to act for nearly 50 years based on one thing, it's just flat out wrong to kill the baby. But over the years, more and more medical, scientific, philosophical, legal, as well as psychological reasons have risen up to cry out against the inhuman and sinful practice of abortion. For example, we now know indisputably that at the very instant when the sperm touches the egg, human life begins. And there is literally a spark that is both measurable and observable that comes from that beginning of human life. But it is amazing to me that as every year goes by, validation upon scientific evidence upon new cries to stop this great evil rise up primarily because of the obviousness of the evil of abortion on demand for any reason. Even to the moment just before and after birth. And please allow me to give you just one illustration that is near and dear to my own heart. You might be tempted to think that all of this was a long time ago, and that as we have developed into a technologically advanced and civilized society, we've outgrown such barbaric thinking. After all, that is what science fiction was designed to teach us, that all of the problems associated with the human race would eventually be solved through science, medicine, technology, and government through the advancement of the ever-evolving human mind. You may not realize it, but the evil of eugenics that many thought had long ago been cast into the trash bin of history is actually alive and well today, even though it has morphed somewhat over the years. Eugenics is the belief that rose up in England and the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that said certain species of mankind are not worthy to procreate. And so government, fueled by pseudoscience, could legally and forcefully sterilize whole segments of the population, all in the name of eliminating crime and other social ills. You'll hear it here, you might not hear it very, very many other places, but at the Nuremberg trials for war crimes after the end of the Second World War, the Nazi leaders used Supreme Court decisions in the United States as their justification to produce a super race of Aryan people in Germany and because they got it from us. We didn't get this from them. The Nazis got it from us. That is a shame. The focus today of the systematic murder of living human beings is now the weak, the deformed, and the mentally impaired. And so in addition to race and poverty, we now have another criteria as to why we continue to slaughter babies, physical or mental weakness. And the argument today in most of all the major hospitals in this country is not only that it is reasonable to kill a weak baby who will have a dip, very difficult life, but it is actually wrong, even immoral, to allow that kind of child to live. 
For example, the man who was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for Literature in 1970, Bertram Russell, was also an agnostic who thought Christianity was little more than superstition, and despite any positive effects that it might have, was largely harmful to people. And in 1953, Russell said, quote, I do not pretend that birth control is the only way in which population can be kept from increasing. War has hitherto been disappointing in this respect, but perhaps bacteriological war may prove more effective. If a black death could be spread throughout the world once in every generation, survivors could procreate freely without making the world too full. The state of affairs might be somewhat unpleasant, but what of that? Really high-minded people are indifferent to happiness, especially other people's. There are three ways of securing a society that will be stable as regards population. The first is that of birth control. The second is that of infanticide or really destructive wars. And the third, that of general misery, except for a powerful minority." Unquote. Those of you who grew up watching the National Geographic television specials during the 1960s and 1970s are familiar with the famous undersea explorer Jacques Cousteau. But you probably don't know that in 1991, Cousteau spoke to the United Nations and said this, quote, in order to stabilize world population, we must eliminate 350,000 people per day. It is a horrible thing to say, but it is just as bad not to say it, unquote. And those of us who use and enjoy a computer might recognize the name Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft. And in 2010, Gates said this, quote, the world today has 6.8 billion people. That's heading up to about 9 billion. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, health care, and reproductive health services, we could lower that perhaps by 10 or 15 percent, which is 680 to a billion people. And in 2013, Richard Dawkins, who is the poster child for the modern activist atheist, said, quote, discussion regarding eugenics was inhibited by the shadow of Nazi misuse to the extent that some scientists would not admit that breeding human for certain abilities is at all possible, even though it is not physically different from breeding domestic animals for traits such as speed or herding skills. Enough time has elapsed to at least ask just what the ethical differences are between breeding for ability versus training athletes or forcing children to take music lessons." Unquote. So do these people have a point? Is it both cruel and unreasonable to bring a child into the world where we know they have physical or mental impairments? Since we now have the ability to detect many serious deficiencies in children before they are born, what are we to think of these so-called deficient babies? As a bond slave of the Lord Christ, what are we to think about babies who are born with mental and physical problems that make life very hard for them and their parents? The sophisticated world tells us that it is wrong for us to force mothers to have children who we know to have serious problems and that the only proper thing to do is to kill the child before it is born so the mother will not be punished. So is that true? Is the concept of eugenics that was condemned in the early 1950s now correct and even proper in 2024? Are those who teach that the weak and the deformed and the mentally impaired are better off dead than alive? What does Almighty God say about this? Please look at Exodus 4, 10 and 11. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, 
nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute? Or deaf? Or seeing? Or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now please allow me to set up the situation we're facing in America today and just how those two verses in Exodus 4 relate to it. Even after Dobbs, there are still about 3,000 abortions every single day in the United States and about 125,000 a day worldwide. And most of these babies are murdered between 10 and 14 weeks of gestation, a time in which the experts say is optimal for the complete dismemberment and evacuation. Yet there is no reason to think that there is any moral or spiritual difference between the baby murdered in the womb and a one-month-old killed outside the womb. All the differences are morally and spiritually negligible. Therefore, if it is wrong to kill a newborn, it is equally wrong to kill a baby in the womb. Now the recent gains in prenatal testing have introduced a reality that previous generations never faced. Through the wonder of common grace, God's love to both the lost and the saved, technology now exists that helps make our lives infinitely better than those who came before us. But we must know that technology in and of itself is amoral, meaning it is neither good nor evil as its primary concern. And that is why technology must always be governed by absolute truth or biblical morality or it will become hideous and evil. And so technology should be used for the glory of God like everything else. But the wonder of technology is now being used without being governed by biblical morality. And so this wondrous gift from God now allows us to abort children with traits that many parents don't want in their child. And that means murdering a living human being based on things like poverty, race, and disability, which were the very same three reasons of a century ago that spawned the eugenics movement. For example, it is common today in China for the government to forcefully abort baby girls because of the imposed one-child law of the godless communists. Yet even most pro-choice people in America think that's terrible. One newspaper writer said something very telling that takes me where I'm going. He said, quote, you don't have to be a feminist to know that being a girl is not a birth defect, unquote. But I see several tragic assumptions in that statement. One of them is that if there is a birth defect, then abortion would not only be advisable, but it would actually become reasonable. And that is where we have come as a society. We simply want to clean up eugenics in order to make it more palatable to the American people. And so now instead of just eugenics, we have eugenics by abortion. So for example, according to Dr. Brian Scott Toe, pediatric geneticist at Children's Hospital in Boston in a November 2009 article from ABC News, quote, an estimated 92% of all women who received a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome chose to terminate their pregnancies, unquote. The headlines didn't say that. The headline says 92% of, def of de deficient babies have now been cured. And they've been cured because you murdered them. That's how they've been cured. And this is true even though, as Gary Bauer points out, there are thousands of waiting lists of couples ready to adopt children with Down syndrome. The May 13, 2007 issue of the New York Times reported, quote, 70% of Americans said they believe that women should be able to obtain a legal abortion if there is a strong chance of a serious defect in the baby, 
unquote. And back in 2008, Wesley Smith wrote in the Weekly Standard, quote, with the development of prenatal genetic diagnoses, the drive towards eugenics has returned with a vengeance. Americans may heartily cheer participants in the Special Olympics, but we abort 90% of all gestating infants diagnosed with genetic disabilities such as Down syndrome, dwarfism, and spina bifida, unquote. As a pastor whose calling is to shepherd the flock of the Covenant of Peace Church by proclaiming the whole counsel of God in the scriptures, I do not sense a direct responsibility for what 70% of Americans think about the worth of children and with disabilities, but I do sense a direct responsibility for what you believe about such children. And that is why I say we must fast for the safety of our little ones. One estimate is that 70% of the women who get abortions in America are professing Christians. I know that several in this church have had abortions. But I don't want you to feel overwhelmed by this message because many of you did that before you were saved. And you need to hear me say that the very core of everything we preach and believe here is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the best news in all the world to women who are tempted to hate themselves for aborting a child. The Holy Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The message I want you to hear is that God knits all of the children together in their mother's wombs. And they are all, all of them, of every degree of ability, conceived for the purpose of displaying the glory of God. And with apologies to the health, wealth, and prosperity people, God said back in Exodus 4 that he made the disabled. And that means that they are not a curse. God said in Exodus 4.11b, Who has made man's mouth? or who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God said these blind, deaf, crippled, and mentally impaired babies were formed disabled on purpose by an infinitely good and merciful and wise God who created them in their weaknesses for the glory of God. And so they are to be cherished and loved and raised and taught and disciplined and cared for, but they are not to be murdered. Psalm 139:13 through 16 says, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Look at what God's infallible word says in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As he, talking about Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Exodus 4 tells you God made him blind. And his disciples asked him, not the Pharisees, the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. What a horrible theology that was. That was common with the Jews in the first century. Couldn't care less about helping disabled people. Their whole exercise was to find cause so they could blame somebody. That was their whole effort. And the disciples of Jesus are doing this, not the Pharisees. And what a stupid theology it is 
because if they think that God judged the man who was born blind, he'd have to have sinned before he was born. What a dumb theology that is. Jesus answered, look what the Lord said. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now here the disciples assumed a direct correlation between a specific sin and the man's disability. And that logic was common back in the first century with the Jews. Something bad always meant somebody sinned. Aren't you glad we are, we're, we, we've risen above that today? Aren't you glad nobody, no Christian in any church in Gulfport thinks that way today? Aren't you glad about that? And so the goal was not to help the person who was suffering. The goal was simply to find somebody to blame for the problem. But we need to understand that this logic is prevalent in our day as well. Uh-oh. Human beings look at sorrow and tragedy and suffering almost universally as being a negative thing. And then they seek to find a correlation with some sinful activity that must have caused the problem. And look, I understand lost people thinking like that, but it is much harder to understand God's people thinking like this since there are literally hundreds of verses and passages and even entire books of the Bible that are written to teach us the truth about these things. And the truth is God's people always suffer for the glory of God. You got two people that's got the same problem. One's lost, one's saved. This man's it's suffering because the earth is cursed and it's fallen and he's on his own. This guy's suffering with the very same problem, but he's saved, he's suffering for the glory of God. That's how God works this. You really believe that, Brother Blair? I absolutely believe that. So in the ungodly mind of those disciples, either that man sinned or his parents sinned. And to show you the silliness of that logic, if the man sinned, he would have had to have sinned in his mother's womb before he was born because he was blind from his birth. Yet here we see that Jesus categorically rejects their logic. The Savior knows that sickness and suffering and disability and death exist in the world because the world has fallen. But Jesus categorically rejected the explanation that specific disabilities correspond to specific sins. Now the Chaldeans believe that, and the Philistines believe that, even the Canaanites and the Babylonians believe that. But from the very beginning, God told his people through his word that that logic was not true. Exodus 4, 11 and B says, who has made man's mouth or who makes him to be, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And so Jesus gave another explanation, a much better explanation. Notice that the disciples asked about the cause of the blindness. They wanted to know the cause so they could assign blame and condemnation. And so Jesus answered their question. But the answer he gives is not about which sin the blindness came from, but where God is taking the one with the disability. In other words, Jesus said the cause of that disability was not some past sin, but so that the man might bring about the glory of God. Look again at verse 3. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the cause of that man's blindness was that God intended to display his work in and through that disabled man. What work? Are we to assume that God is a sadist who enjoys watching people struggle with disabilities? I mean, Margaret Sanger and many very famous hospitals would have helped this man's mother destroy him before he was ever born. 
Here's one of the clearest examples of why we need to read and study and understand the scriptures. The scripture gives insight into not only why God does things, but into who God is. Since God is not a man, he doesn't think or operate like a man. And so in order to comprehend what God is doing, we need to do what the Puritans taught and learn the logic of scripture. Scripture allows us to stand in God's shoes, so to speak, and see events from God's perspective. And so what we learn from the Bible is that God is constantly doing 10,000 things all at once. God is sovereignly causing and allowing and guiding and preventing thousands of thoughts and actions and events to come about so that five things will always be accomplished. God's will is carried out. God will be glorified. The fame of God's name will spread across the universe so that we will know that there is none like God in all the earth and all of God's elect will be saved and come to delight in God. Hallelujah. Because God is omnipotent and omniscient, God sees the past, present, and future all at once. And so in his power and wisdom, God is providentially carrying out thousands of details all at once to guarantee that his will is carried out in the earth perfectly. And yet, because of our weak flesh, we can only see a few of them. And we must trust God for the rest. But look what Jesus said in John 9, 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. In other words, Jesus is telling this man that sin is a far worse than being blind or crippled or poor or mentally or physically impaired. Going to hell is infinitely worse than having a hard life. In other words, Jesus was telling this man that his biggest problem was not his physical disability, but his sin, and that he needed to repent and be saved. And John 9, 35 through 38 says, Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who was talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Hallelujah. This man being able to see the glory of Jesus as God and worshiping him was the main point of everything Jesus said and did while he was here on the earth. So the blind man's greatest need was not to be physically healed, but that he see the glory of Jesus. And because he sees, he loved what he saw and he worships him. And that is what he did. So when Jesus said in verse 3, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is the work of God, that the blind man sees Jesus as God and worships him through the miracle of seeing natural light. So the man was given natural eyes so that he could receive spiritual eyes, so he could see the glory of this world and the glory of its maker, Jesus Christ, and worship him. And from this I conclude that in every disability, whether genetically from the womb or circumstantially from an accident or infectiously from a disease, God has a good and wise and powerful design, a purpose that will always lead to his own glory and for the good of his people who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that is why we need to fast for the safety of the little ones. Therefore, it is wrong to think that such children in the womb are unimportant or without a unique God-given worth in this world. And it is wrong to murder them in whatever name it is done for whatever reason. Now, some might say, but just a minute, Brother Blair, you're trying to impose unfairness on people who don't want an, a, a defective child. No, 
my wife and I put our money where our mouth was, and we had a child that was both weak and sick. And yes, it was very hard to have her and raise her, but by the grace of God, we did. And we rejoiced that we loved her and that we taught her to love Jesus and to sing hymns and to go to church and to praise the Lord in her weakness and in her sickness. And Joy Bradley is now with Jesus forever. So when I tell you not to kill your baby because it is weak or sick, I speak not only from the authority of the Word of God, but from my own personal experience. Others might say, but that blind man of John 9 got his eyes and was able to benefit himself from the work of God. My child stayed blind. Or someone might say, my child never had the mental ability to process biblical truth about Jesus as being the light of the world or wonder at before Abraham was, I am. And that's often true. And so we must realize that the full scope of the work of God in the lives of the disabled always happens in the mystery and in the sovereignty of God because none of us is fully healed in this world but there, there will be a resurrection where Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so we should not think that the works of God will only benefit the one who has the disability. We can't tell what is going on in the mind and the heart of many of the mentally disabled. Only God can. But God can and God does. And so God is working his work through those disabilities into the lives of others too. And that is often the miracle. The works of faith, the labors of love, and the steadfastness of hope are amazing works of God that put his all-satisfying glory on display in the lives of parents and brothers and sisters and friends and churches. Someone else might say, but these people all lived. Even Lazarus, though he died, lived again to bring glory to God. So what about the disabled who die? Indeed, what about any of us who die? Is dying the great triumph of the enemy? And should we say here the glory of God is ended? Or should we say, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So should we look at the death of the disabled as being meaningless? Or is this too appointed by God for the glory of his name? The Gospel of John closes in chapter 21 with Jesus speaking to Simon Peter about this. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. So God had sovereignly appointed for Peter both a disability and the end of his life as well as a death for the glory of God. So I stand by the conclusion from John 9. In every disability, whether genetically from the womb or circumstantially from an accident or infectiously from a disease, God has a good and wise and powerful design, a purpose for his own glory and for the good of his people who love him and are called according to his purpose. Therefore, it is wrong to think that such children in the womb or out of the womb or in their doddering old age are unimportant or without a unique God-given worth in this world. And so I say, eugenics by abortion is an abomination to God. And in the name of Jesus Christ, we must renounce it, hate it, reject it, 
And as his children, we must never engage in it. That is what the Bible teaches. And so we should fast for the safety of the little ones. But that's not all the Bible teaches. It also teaches that if you have engaged in this sin, there is an advocate for you, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And we should shout from the rooftop that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. I thank God for every effort by the local, state, or federal governments to ban abortion. But I also know that education and governmental action in and of itself will not bring an end to this American Holocaust. God's people must fast, and we must fast and beg God to keep our children safe. And we must fast and ask God to keep all of our children safe, especially those who are the prime targets of the systematic slaughter of the innocents. But we must also fast for God to not only change the minds of the individuals who promote or excuse or avail themselves of abortion, we must also beg God to grip their hearts so that one day, in every state, abortion in the United States will not merely be illegal, but that it will become unthinkable. Dear God, make it so. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, have mercy upon us. God, forgive this nation. Forgive the cowardice of the leaders of this nation who would rather get reelected than tell the truth. Forgive us, God. Help us to, to do whatever we can do to make sure this does not happen in our city, in our county, in our state. Things we have control over. Help us, God, to be faithful. Help us to see the need to fast for the safety of the little ones. In Jesus' name.